Good evening and welcome to another edition of the CNS Guidelines podcast. My name is Brad Elder. I am neurosurgery faculty at The Ohio State University and I am host of the Guidelines podcast. Tonight, our guest is Dr. Jonathan Sherman. He is at West Virginia University. and uh, He's gonna present and discuss with us his paper entitled Congress of Neurological Surgeons, Systematic Review and Evidence-Based Guidelines Update on the role of cytoreductive surgery in the management of progressive glioblastoma in adults. This paper was published online in March of 2022. And so with that, I'm going to turn it over to Dr. Sherman, who's gonna give us an overview of his manuscript, tell us what, uh, what they did and what they found, and, and then we'll have some questions for him. Go ahead, Dr. Sherman. Great, thank you, Brad. Um, so as Brad mentioned, my name is Jonathan Sherman, and I am the uh, Director of Surgical Neuro-Oncology for our Western, you know, Western University, um, West Virginia University Eastern Campus of Rockefeller Neuroscience Institute. Fortunately, my uh, resident colleague, Hayes Patrick, was unable to join us tonight, who was the senior author on this manuscript. And so what we hope to do with this manuscript was really an update from a, a prior manuscript that was published in 2014. And the goal of the manuscript is really to understand how cytoreductive surgery and progressive glioblastoma uh, should be managed and, uh, and what's in the literature. And so if you look back into the original paper back in 2014, there were 32 total papers that are identified in the literature that talked about cytoreductive surgery and glioblastoma. And of those papers, as what we find in many of these, our literature searches, is that there's, uh, there's not a lot of uh, randomized control trials. Most of them are really at the level of what we call uh, class two or class three evidence, which does not really have that randomization, but to utilize these studies that you can truly identify what the goals are. And what that really identified back then was that um, cytoreductive surgery and, and the select group of patients can be valuable. Uh, and so the question is, when are those patients uh, eligible for uh, repeat surgery? And, and if they are eligible, um, you know, what, what are the risks and what are the benefits of doing that? And so we, we scoured the literature essentially from 2014 back up to um, a couple of years ago. And surprisingly enough, we only found four additional studies that really benefited. And in addition to the previous study in telling us something new other than there might be some benefit to cytoreductive surgery. And so um, what we found in uh, of those four studies, there were major, majority class three data, which is just a lower uh, level of confidence in how that you know, can be generalized. Meaning that, you know, if you have level one randomized control trials, that's, that's the, the, the prima of papers. So, you know, the data is valuable, but you have to take it for what it is, that the data really wasn't intended to look at um, recurrent glioblastoma as part of the studies that they were, they were involved in. One of the studies was actually looking at even chemotherapy uh, using Temidar, which is a standard chemotherapy used after you resect glioblastoma. One of the studies was a randomized trial looking at that. And as part of that study, there were patients that had recurrent tumors that had surgery. And so there were two primary items that came out that I think are very interesting and kind of be, can be extrapolated into general care glioblastoma patients. Uh, number one is that we found that not only is cytoreductive surgery important, but just like in primary resection of glioblastoma, max total safe resection is important. And what we mean by that is the patients that did the best and had the longest survival 
for patients that you could uh, maximize resection with minimizing morbidity. And that can be simplified in what's known as the uh, Kardoskey performance score, essentially the KPS. And so when patients come in with a set KPS, they, you know, we know what their performance is, and then we can evaluate post-surgically what their performance is and correlate that to outcomes. And so what we found that if you can keep patients essentially at a equal KPS without worsening their performance, worsening, worsening their function, then those are the patients that do best when you maximize resection. So if you, you know, if you do a, a partial resection with significant tumor burden or residual or even a biopsy, those patients on, on for all intents and purposes of recurrent glioblastoma do worse than patients that had maximum cytoreductive surgery. So that was item number one that we identified. Number two relates to older patients. So there's this general gestalt that, especially after age 70, and this goes to early studies that really kind of excluded older patients in primary glioblastoma, that if a patient's older than 70, they really should get maybe a biopsy, just enough to identify tumor burden, and then they get a, actually a lower dose of radiation post-treatment. And so we wanted to, you know, look in the literature with our studies and see in recurrent glioblastoma, is there a way to evaluate? Have we done enough uh, data assessment? Do we have enough patients to say, all right, older patients will do better with cytoreductive surgery? And what we found is very similar to younger patients. Patients that come in with a good performance status, that have lower preoperative comorbidities such as heart problems, lung problems that are safe to go under general anesthesia, those patients that we maximized surgery with maximal cytoreductive surgery did better than older patients that did not have the same uh, opportunity to have cytoreductive surgery. But once again, if those patients worsened with their postoperative KPS, then those patients did poorer. So that was the second item we identified, that elderly patients should not be excluded for cytoreductive surgery at glioblastoma recurrence, but they should actually be considered for um, surgery if they're selected out. As so those are the two primary outcomes we found, which it was only four additional studies, but even with those four studies, we felt like we added to the prior paper from 2014. Great. Uh, well, that's an excellent summary of the, the paper. Can you tell me, you know, just, I just want to ask some, some stuff for my own clarity. So you say you, you use the, the term, I think can be valuable and can be important. What is, what is the value? What, I mean, if, if in a, in a patient who has max safe resection versus just a biopsy at the time of recurrence, what, what is that value? Is it in survival? Is it, is it, uh, in, you know, staving off neurologic symptoms? It can be both. I mean, we found that, in, as I said, the studies, especially the randomized study, which wasn't really powered for that, that wasn't really the intent of the study, but we did find that their overall survival was higher in those patients. But, you know, some would say that could be biased because the data wasn't actually generated for that purpose. But generally speaking, we extrapolate that out from the primary recurrence patients, and we, and we see that patients do survive longer if you remove more tumor. And so when you actually have your second or third line chemotherapeutics, or even if you're going to rechallenge them with Temidar or, or just standard upfront treatment, patients do better. So one of it is actually what we think, you know, is not just progression-free survival, but actually uh, increased overall survival. And this kind of correlates, it hasn't been studied in recurrent tumors, it's more for upfront tumors. When we talk about uh, supertotal resection, where you're actually uh, removing the flare signal and whatnot, uh, we think that actually correlates to um, 
recurrent tumors as well, where you're really removing tumor burden, and that's going to give a better chance of less tumor residual to have to be affected by your secondary adjuvant treatment. And on top of that, I mean, it depends on where the tumor is to answer your second part of your question. You know, is that going to actually improve how, the, you know, the patient, you know, the morbidity or the, you know, the symptom relief, you know, maybe headaches, you know, con cognition, you know, you have to take into account and, and this, none of these studies really, really developed was utilized in the world of network analysis, connectomics. And now that we're really integrating that, future studies will be really interesting on that regard because we didn't really, these things weren't done in, in trying to protect we talked about the oncofunctional balance. That's you know these weren't done in that regard. But generally speaking, just removing tumor burden, lowering edema, in theory, that's going to uh, minimize morbidity and actually improve patients symptomatically with regard to headaches and seizures and all that. But that's kind of hard to you know, we're kind of pontificating on that. It's kind of hard to extrapolate that. Is that really what we see? You know, from these studies, no, we couldn't identify that. But in anecdotally, we see that. What, so you mentioned the four papers. Were they all class three evidence or were some class two? If I remember correctly, there were two retrospective studies. Uh, both were classified as class three. And then there was a two prospective studies. And one was considered class three. And then the other one was considered class two. And so... Um, the, and there was only one that was, so yeah, so one was a single center prospective cohort study that was considered class three. There was a multi-center prospective randomized trial, but that was the one that was the, the dose intensified timozolomide study, which was intended to look at timozolomide, not actually on recurrent resection of tumors, but, it, but you could subset the, you could do subset analysis on that to evaluate that. And as I said, there were two retrospective studies, uh, actually both were retrospective cohort studies and both were considered class three. So, so having done, you know, these guidelines podcasts for a while, I've got, I've gotten familiar with the different levels of recommendation, the level one, the level two, the level three, and how they rely on the different classes of evidence. Was the manuscript that you just published, did that achieve a different level of, was there an actual kind of recommendation generated? And if so, what was the, the level, the uh, it didn't change the previous recommendation. The recommendation was actually set at level two, which was the prior studies level recommendation. And so the general you know, recommendations repeat cytoreductive surgery is, re is recommended in uh, progressive patients to improve overall survival. So that's really the only summary recommendation that came out of this. That was considered level two, which was actually along with the prior level two recommendation from the 2014 study. So this didn't change that. What, what we were, I guess to say excited about, or at least felt that we added value to the literature was that if you go into the nitty gritty of the paper, you know, despite the overall recommendation being limited based on the quality of the paper, you could really see what future studies could add credence to in the respect that even though most of the papers were level three, they really gave you a perspective on not only is cytoreductive surgery important, but the degree might be important and the um, with, with respect to patient outcome and, and, and the fact that elderly patients shouldn't be excluded in that analysis. So, so if, I, if I think about that, you know, from 2014 till now, there's only been four papers that really kind of met your criteria. Does, does that mean as a field that this question is sort of answered? You know, that this, that, that you know, people aren't doing studies on this because you know, everybody feels like this this question is 
you know, kind of been put to bed, so to speak? Or is there is there something else that behind a, a lack of class one evidence? Now, I need to speak for the for all of the uh, multitude of researchers out there that are studying this field and, and studying this field. But if I had to give my own two cents about it, I would say the issue is not that there's lack of interest at all. There's a significant interest in it. The issue is that if you look at treatment, you're talking about um, uh, select drugs or select, um, you know, if you be maybe it's a, a chemotherapeutic, maybe it's an Im immune modulator drug or all the different, you know, vaccine trials, all the different types of treatments are all very selective and they're all very specific. And so I think that everyone is very keen on studying what their area of research is that relates to treatment of glioblastoma in general. And I think that the issue is that trying to quantify that into a generalizable recurrent glioblastoma cohort is very difficult. So could you end up being studying, all right, I'm gonna be studying this immunotherapy drug in this patient population of recurrent glioblastoma and, you know, and, and that's more on the treatment. From a surgical perspective, you know, yeah, to specifically answer this question, you know, that's, that is, uh, that's part of the treatment because when you go into the treatment you, of recurrence, you need to do the surgery to get to your diagnosis, to get to your molecular subtyping, especially in light of the new WHO classifications and how complicated it is now. So cytoreductive surgery is part of that process to get you to your new treatment, but not the primary goal. The, you know, so I think it, in isolation, you end up with these subset analysis looking at cytoreductive surgery in isolation, which is very hard to extrapolate because you have a multitude of different treatments that can all confound what your actual outcome is. Yeah, I mean, I guess another way of looking at it is it, it doesn't seem like in the past eight years, anybody uh, has published something to suggest that cytoreductive surgery is contraindicated. Yeah, no, and that and that's true. I think that that they are unbiased in the respect that we do use statistical analysis, and so I think that you know we kind of, we it's a it's not so much a self fulfilling prophecy as surgeons presenting publishing a paper on why they get to do why, why surgery has positivity. I think the truth is that we know that cytoreductive surgery going back, you know, you an old you know, presentation that I've showed from years ago when I when I go out there and talk about this stuff is that you know non prospective randomized trials, but if you look at all the literature, cytoreductive surgery and primary glioblastomas, generally speaking, shows significant improved progression-free and in some respects overall survival compared to, you know, um, you know biopsy and whatnot. So I think going into re recurrent surgery, that that's something that we would expect. The real question comes, especially for your community physicians, or in, in some respect, even your academic physicians, you know, when do you, you see a recurrent tumor? You know, when do you actually warrant that resection? So, it, and, and now can that be an isolation of a secondary treatment line? So if you, if your only option, this is where it gets, you know, a little bit unknown. If your only option, if you're at a center, let's say you're at a major center that doesn't actually have an active recurrent glioblastoma trial going on. And your only option is either to give them a Vastin or Temidar, right? Or recurrent Temidar, right? Then does that make sense? And I don't think the literature is out there on that because in some respects, you do a big cytoreductive surgery to the Vastin, you're waiting six weeks or some, you know, four, but usually six weeks or so to give them that drug. And so are you at just act asking for that tumor to recur in the meantime? And is it is it a relatively futile operation? Most of these studies that were out there were looking at a drug that you were going to then give. 
on in combination. So that's where it makes sense. But it does still get confusing if you don't have that drug and you're just looking at standard reductive surgery in isolation and maybe rechallenging with Timidar. Is there a role for that? And I think that's still an unknown question. So, so what 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 is the trial? I mean, if you could pick a you know design a trial and just just have everybody run it until you got the you know whatever statistical you know statistical analysis you need, whatever n you need, you could get. What would be the trial that you would do to to kind of help answer lingering questions on this topic? Well, I mean, <laughs> I think if you could pick an ideal trial. And you had a multi multitude of drugs. Like we 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 want to make, um, in some respects, glioblastoma like a not a diabetes per se, but a, a a cancer that you can modify treatments as things go on. So if you if you look at this as the studies that have, or the trial designs that have come out, where you look at the actual mechanism or the underlying uh, analysis of uh, whichever RTKs are um, involved in tumor progression, be it this you know stem cell uh, stem cell genes or whatever genes are involved with with recurrence, then what the ideal trial would say, all right, I'm going to resect a tumor, I'm going to look at its genetics, and I'm going to pick a, a, the best treatment. Let's say everyone starts with Timidon. Then at recurrence, you do cytoreductive surgery and you look at the genetics and based on the RTKs or whatever genetic ab aberrations within that tumor are, um, on the, are on the highest end, maybe that's like maybe it's a PDGF inhibitor or maybe it's you know, a combination of mutational analysis that would you know, in indicate immunotherapy or you know, maybe there's an immune modulator, like a, a selective inhibitor that would make sense. So based on your recurrence analysis of the genetics, then you modify treatment. And so I think that each of those tumors would ideally then go um, big trials that are, they're looking at for multiple centers where you actually look at the genetics and modify treatment specifically for the genetics of those tumors. I think that would be the perfect trial because, you know, the recurrent tumors, the upfront treatments get standard of care, the recurrent tumors then get max total resection and then selective uh, treatment based on their underlying genetics. And then you follow them out. And as those tumors recur, you might, if it's safe, resect them again, which some of the studies have shown multiple resections has value. And once you resect them again, then you look at those genetics again, and then you modify treatment. And so as the tumors recur, you're constantly modifying treatment based on how the genetics is being altered as the tumor uh, slips through uh, the primary treatment or the secondary treatment, and you get a subset that actually grows. But how, but how does that, I guess what maybe I, I didn't ask my question properly, the, you know, if you're really interested in knowing whether cytoreductive surgery in and of itself is beneficial versus, versus a, a biopsy, because it sounds like a lot of these, a lot of the more recent data has just been in concert with um, a you know, a, some some other clinical trial. You know, whether it's a some experimental agent. So it's not really studied the question that your paper looked at. So if you well, really want, in that respect, you're going to. Um, I mean, you'd almost have to. If you wanted the ideal, ideal quote in quote in quote trial, you'd have to take patients that have that were treated with primary upfront Timidar and radiation, had recurrence, and then you randomize those patients to either get max total re resection and then versus biopsy and then 
you know, in theory, you would just re-challenge them with Temidar, or you could move on to Avasta, but you would, if you wanted to just look at center of surgery, then what I just described wouldn't pertain. You'd actually have to have everyone on the post-resection same treatment. Some of those patients that you want to do max total resection, just because of semantics, because of eloquence, whatever, you'd have, you'd end up with subtotal resection. So you'd end up with three groups. You'd have a gross total resection group, a subtotal resection group, and a biopsy group where the randomization was between, was between re-resection versus biopsy. And then everyone gets a set treatment post-op. So let's say at five weeks or whatever, they get Temidar. Oh, yeah, Avastin versus re-challenge with Temidar. And then you wouldn't, then you would take out of the factor, they factor out of what additional adjunct treatment they get and everyone gets yeah. But that, I don't think that in this day and age, that's a practical study. Yeah, because it may, it may fly into the into the you know the what our understanding of literature is so far to not offer you know what we think of as having level two evidence which is cytoreductive surgery um do, does your paper look at you know third surgeries fourth surgeries or is that was that beyond the scope of what you what you looked at no yeah no no um there was one paper that talked about single resection versus multiple resections but it didn't classify how many that meant and so we didn't go into that depth it was just one paper they, but there were patients that had multiple, more than one resection post, more, more than two resections. It, it was just listed as multiple resections, at least from my review of that. And so, no, I mean, you know, there's, uh, that, that was beyond the scope. Um, but to be honest, I don't think there's much out there that talks about that. I think that's most anecdotal. Well, uh, we're, we're running a little short on time, but I did want to get a, you know, be able to ask, what did I not ask? Are there any big take-home messages from your paper that uh, would would help you'd want the audience to hear would or you think are is is key to sort of understanding the topic I think the only thing that I mean you, you asked all uh, all the relevant questions I just want to go back to one uh, verb one word I, I said and I, I can't really take credit for this uh, word it's really Michael Segrew's word is onco functional balance um, and also Dave Scarsbrook's word, who's our neuropsychologist over at West Virginia University. And they, they both share that word, I think. And what I mean, and I think that's a very important word. And, and oncofunctional balance really means the maximizing resection with minimizing morbidity. And, some, and what that actually can mean is that you can have eloquent cortex that's going to otherwise be you know, destroyed, invaded by tumor already has been, that you are willingly resecting, mix, maximizing resection, knowing that the tumor is going to take that area anyway. And that's a really tough thing to, to, know, to make that decision sometimes. But I think functional balance is going to be a major portion, if it not already is, going forward with any patients with glioblastoma. And that, that's really key when it comes to not only um, secondary resection, but also primary resection. So I think that's a, that's, a, that's a phrase that will become part of everyone's verbiage in this field. And I think it's important as we understand connectomics and uh, network analysis and how that correlates beyond just the traditional DTI and the traditional functional mapping that we've been doing, I think we're going to have a better understanding how to maximize outcome with minimizing um, morbidity and maximizing quality of life. So, no, I think you covered it well, and I appreciate the opportunity to talk today. Great. Well, we uh, for sure appreciate your willingness to spend time with us uh, talking about your paper. Uh, I want to thank uh, Dr. Sherman very much for joining us tonight. Uh, I also want to thank him and his co-authors uh, for their tireless work bringing these guideline projects to fruition. I know this is not Dr. Sherman's first publication in this field. I'm sure it won't be his last. So I definitely want to express an appreciation for, for doing these uh, sorts of projects. They're, they're a monumental amount of work. 
for our listeners, please check the CNS website regularly for updated guidelines, topics, and podcasts. And for everyone, uh, thank you for listening and good night.